Hello and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism. This is a podcast exploring how we can best maintain a sense of energy, inspiration, and wakefulness while dealing with the unique stressors of this very strange and yet potent time. My name is Brett. I'm going to be your host on this journey. And joining us on the show today is author, scholar, and one of the founding members of the Rocky Mountain Eco Dharma Retreat Center, David Loy. This pertinent and sobering conversation is about the intersection of Buddhist practice and the myriad of ecological crises we are facing today. In it, we explore what David is calling the eco-dharma, a new approach to spiritual practice that involves working with the troubling environmental and economic situations that we find ourselves in. This perspective is one that helps us develop a sense of resiliency while also simultaneously addressing the very real problems that we're facing. If you want to continue studying this material post-episode, I highly encourage you to check out David's book, Ecodharma, and some of his other online materials over at davidloy.org. That link is going to be in the description. If you want to support this show going forward, consider liking us on Facebook, following us on Instagram, and subscribing over at YouTube. I also encourage you to check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash 21st Century Vitalism. Anything that you can do will help us keep the lights on, so to speak. Uh, And I see it, and I appreciate it, and I appreciate you. So without further ado, please sit back, drink some tea, do some stretches, and open your heart for David Oley. So, David, we are now live. I want to say thank you so much for coming on board, and welcome to 21st Century Vitalism. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for this invitation. I'm uh, pleased that we have the opportunity for this conversation. Yeah. So, a little bit of background. I spent all of April going through your book, Ecodharma. I had heard (laughs) about you from one of my teachers when we were talking about Engaged Buddhism, and he brought up your book, and it was on my radar for a bit, but I actually dedicated the time to really go through it and take my time. And uh, congratulations, it's an amazing book. Uh, it has, uh, it, it definitely put me through the ringer emotionally in some ways. I found it to be, I mean, it's it's sobering material. You know, there's a lot about it that you, you really do not shy away from the issues that were faced in the modern age with uh, just the environmental crises um, but you also left it feeling kind of hopeful and inspirational, but also preparing for the worst. And it was just this really <laughs> yeah. wonderful way to just be honest and also highlight some of the joys of being human and what we can do about it. So thank you for that dedication to the that kind of work. I really want to start by saying. Yeah. Well, let me just say that uh, I can understand your response because that first chapter in particular, you know, tries to make clear the situation we're in. And of course, if I were um, writing the book now or rewriting it, I have to update that first chapter. And uh, in many ways, our situation is worse than it was uh, then. Um, uh, but I think it's really essential that that's, that, that that's where we start. And, you know, a lot of times we talk about climate change. And one of the things that I emphasize whenever I'm asked to talk about climate change is, I don't talk about climate change in the sense that that's just the uh, tip of a much larger iceberg, given the larger ecological crisis with loss of biodiversity, you know, the 
all the different types of kinds of pollutants in the air and the earth, in the water, in our bodies, and and so forth. So grim as it is, we really have to remember that that the the challenge is much greater, and it's not just a matter of sort of switching as quickly as we can to renewables, important though that is, it's this larger question that I'm sure we're going to touch on about uh, our general, our relationship to the earth. Yeah. And really our relationship to ourselves too. I mean, you go, I think it was in the second chapter, just talking about how we evolved into this worldview where we are really just exploiting the planet. We are totally disconnected from the effect of those actions. I feel like those, when you're setting everything up is such a compassionate thing to do because it's so clear and precise. And I really, really appreciated the lack of tiptoeing around it. I, I think a lot of times in this discourse, people can get really overwhelmed when they talk about these environmental challenges. And I think like we need that sober voice. We need that ability to call the illness out as it is. And I just think you articulated all these elements just really brilliantly. Well, thank you for that. And uh, as, as you're implying, it's not just a matter of understanding where we're at now, but you know, how did we get here? Uh, uh, why, why are we in this situation when, on one hand, we're so obviously part of the earth, one of the species it's produced, and yet we have this really strong sense of separation to the point that we feel our own well-being can be distinguished from that of the earth. And of course, the ecological crisis is kind of the big reminder, well, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting that a terrestrial creature such as human beings have really turned on our our home, our womb that we've grown in. It's such a bizarre thing to consider that anything in the ecosystem could be so kind of destructive and yet also a really beautiful expression of creativity and holding those polarities is just... Uh, it can be very daunting to try and do. How, how did we come to feel so alienated, so separate? I mean, that that's a fascinating question. And, you know, there, there's a lot of things one can talk about. Uh, agriculture, uh, how, you know, once we shifted from hunting-gathering, when you're very much embedded in the earth, and then once you're uh, settled down and growing crops, then there is a sense of inside and outside. You've got to defend your 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 crops and your animals from the outside from the the predators that might want to eat them uh, and, and so i think that is is part of the issue but a lot of it has to do with our religions and the way that they have encouraged us to aspire to another kind of postmortem reality um, for example an eternity with with god in heaven which is very um, very common in a lot of religions as we know yeah. yeah, it's it's interesting how we've used that as a means to kind of forsake like the current embodied in flesh kind of reality that we're living in, this idea that, you know, this is all the temporary thing and then there's something that's more real on the other side and this is all just a means to get to that. You know, the way that that actually turns our back, I mean, even from a more uh, monotheistic kind of thing, like we're turning our back on creation to pursue, like, it just seems not very thought out. Well, you know, th those are two sides of the same thing. On, on the one hand, this, this dualism, you could call it a kind of cosmological dualism, whatever, where, you know, it, in a way, this 
this reality here and now becomes devalued into a kind of a temporary means to qualify for this better immortal place, right? Uh, there's that duality, but also the same duality between body and mind, or as it used to be, body and soul. It's, it's the smaller version of exactly the same thing. You know, when you study those religions, they're all, there's so much there about, uh, you know, the body is the problem and the soul, you want to liberate the soul. And of course, that that's carried down into our culture. You know, maybe it's changing now, but certainly for thousands of years, this kind of looking upon the body as inherently a problem uh, and, uh, you know, something that we ultimately want to escape from. Yeah. It's it's really pernicious how much that seeps into our modern psychology too. I don't think a lot of people recognize the influence that Judeo-Christianity and all of that has really affected the very substrate of how we perceive the world and ourselves in it. Like whether or not we agree with it, someone could be an atheist, but they're still being guided by those those principles, whether they like know it or not. And that's, I think, what makes it really difficult is it's it's our very foundation of how we relate to the world. Part of that foundation, I think, is the the traditional kind of religious solution, you know, transcending this world. It also solves our, or it addresses our fear of death. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, 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 it basically reassures us, hey, guys, you know, you don't, really, you don't die. Your body will die, but there's this more precious thing, the soul or the mind or whatever that's going to live on. And that's such a deep um, sort of pri primordial fear for all of us. So the fact that religion, you know, promises us we don't have to die, I, I think that's, that's a lot of the attraction. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you and I are both um, Buddhist practitioners. And how do you feel like that system differs from that? Because, I mean, a big part of your book is using Buddhism to address some of these issues within ourselves, within the environment. Um, is it possible that that could also be turned into an, a more dualistic way? Or how does this system interface with the challenges we're facing? That's a really interesting question because I think there's two sides to Buddhism. Um, on, on the popular level, I think Buddhism often becomes another version of the same kind of thing, uh, especially the way that karma and rebirth is understood. So, you know, uh, and uh, for example, if you go to Southeast Asia, a place like Thailand, the way they understand uh, the role of lay people, it's that it's to support the monastics you know, give them food in the morning, uh, you know, maybe give money to the temple. Um, because by doing that, you accumulate merit. And merit is a kind of a commodified understanding of karma. It's like a heavenly bank account. And then when you die, it means you will be reborn probably into a more comfortable situation, maybe a wealthier family. So that uh, Buddhism can and does play that same kind of game in the, in the sense of um, and, and you can add to that the way that nirvana is sometimes understood in, in the same fashion as some sort of higher reality that one can go to that you, you can eventually qualify for if you meditate. So there's that side to it for sure. But then, you know, Buddhism has this emphasis, really the kind of counterintuitive emphasis from the beginning on non-self. And you could say the claim is that 
this is one way to put it. There, there's an important sense in which we can't die because we were never born. That, that the the point is not to liberate some kind of soul or pure self from the body, but to realize our our true nature right here and now, and. That's characterized in different ways, but one of the important characterizations is is this denial of duality, denial that there's a sense of me inside that's separate from you and other people and the rest of the world outside, and and the and the role of the practice is is to realize that and then to sort of restructure how we live in the world, the meaning of our lives in a way that uh, that embodies that that realization. So it's not about, I mean. One one way to sum it up is that I th I think Buddhism, at its best, uh, is not about encouraging us to sort of transcend this world, but to transcend a particular way of understanding and experiencing it. That that's possible, and 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 I think if we really understand what's going on there, then it doesn't involve devaluing the world in order to get to somewhere better, but rather actually coming to realize more deeply our non-duality, our, our embodiment uh, in the world, in the earth. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's where a lot of Westerners, and that's something that I still, as a fledgling practitioner, trying to get into the headspace or the direct understanding of this non-self. And I could see people who like hear that, like, like maybe feel like a little attacked you're like what yeah. do you mean like i'm not like we we have like a kind of a worship of self here in the west and we're really individually focused we're all about our destiny and our own unique fates and really building up this empire of ego so to speak so could you explore that a little bit more and like what do you mean by non-self Sure, but let let me back up or contextualize that a little bit because if we go back to the earliest teachings of the buddha uh, you know, as embodied, say, in the Pali Canon, the earliest teachings we have, right? The Buddha starts, in fact, he kind of ends. He, he, he says that the only thing he's really talking about is dukkha, which is um, usually translated into English as suffering, but you have to understand it in the broadest sense, not just physical or mental pain, but dissatisfaction, frustration, um, anxiety, dis-ease, you could say. And the whole point about non-self is, I think, implicit in, in the idea that at the core of our dukkha, this dissatisfaction, is the delusion of a separate self, the delusion that there's a me inside that's separate from the rest of the world outside, as I was saying. So, the, you know, the Buddhist critique of self, it's actually a, a critique, a challenge to this sense of separation, really, a sense of uh, duality, uh, I think, it, it helps to understand it in in that way. And then I think that helps explain a lot the whole point of something like meditation. Um, uh, in in more contemporary language, the the sense of self, which, by the way, you know, babies, infants aren't born with. Uh, it's it's a kind of psychological and social construct. It's something that develops as we grow up. You know, we uh, we learn to use language. We learn to see ourselves as other people do, and so we, the sense of self is really composed of these mostly habitual ways of thinking and feeling and acting and so forth that work together to sort of reinforce this this delusion of separation. And basically, then, when we're meditating, what's going on is we are uh, 
in a way, learning to let go of that, right? Like when you're meditating, these habitual thought patterns, habit patterns, they come into our minds, but if we're meditating, we're not holding on to them. They'll kind of come and they'll go. And this can lead to this sense of uh, of letting go. I mean, I think the process, as far as I'm concerned, the best summary of it was by the Japanese Zen master Dogen, who said, you know, to study the self, uh, sorry, to study the Buddha Dharma, Buddhism, is to study the self, not self, not study um, in the usual academic sense, but to sort of inquire into, right? Um, yeah, and then yeah. to inquire into, to study the self is to forget the self. In a way, that's what the meditation can lead to. And that's the experience we talk about as uh, in Zen, we talk about Kensho or Satori, uh, you know, enlightenment. And then to forget the self, Dogen said, is to realize your intimacy with the 10,000 things. Another way to say that is to realize your, your non-separation from other people and the rest of the world. And Dogen, actually, he described his own experience in, in a beautiful way, uh, quoting a Chinese master. He said, I came to realize clearly that mind is nothing other than rivers and mountains and the great wide earth, the sun and the moon and the stars. So it's much more a sense of uh, connectedness. And that's the problem with the sense of self. Insofar as we feel that we're separate, you know, then we're preoccupied trying to uh, substantialize ourselves, trying to make ourselves feel more real. As long as we have this sense of separation, I think we have this sense of lack where something is missing, something is wrong, I'm not good enough. And we become preoccupied with sort of ways trying to fill up that sense of lack, uh, which don't work because they're just symptoms of the really basic problem. And that the, the, the point of a spiritual practice, like say Buddhist meditation, is, is to go to the core of the problem, which is the delusion of a separate self and, and see through that. I hope that makes some sense. It does. And that was a really beautiful way to articulate all of that. So bringing it into uh, addressing like the ecological crisis, how could this deconstruction of this kind of illusion of self, how could this lead us into a deeper um, desire to engage? Because it almost like my, as you're saying this, I mean, I, I feel a sense of kind of bottoming out, maybe like a little bit of fear where it's like when I'm really engaged with myself, when I'm really engaged with like my story and building up, it's easy to kind of spend months not even thinking about the environment. But like when you're saying this, it's like the more closer I get to it, the more I feel like you're opening yourself up to feel its pain as well because like there is so much breaking down right now. And I think most people want to kind of turn away from it. So yeah, what does that process look like for, for you? Because you're in the unique position yeah. of having really bridge these two worlds you know it's not really a, a common thing to talk about environmentalism and buddhism so Still how does that lead into the other true. yeah yeah uh well there's a couple things there i mean i think the first thing to emphasize is that as long as we have the sense of separate self and this sense of lack that i talked talked about i think Implicit in that is a kind of self-preoccupation, right? It's like, what's in it for me? And so that encourages a kind of uh, even narcissism, whereby uh, because we feel uncomfortable, we're, we're basically treating the world as a means to our ends, right? Whether that's our pleasure or, or uh, our, our security, 
and and so the experience that Buddhism is is talking about is a way of transforming the meaning of our lives, right? As long as there's a sense of self, what's in it for me? But when I realize that I'm um, uh, non-separate, you know, as as so many Buddhist teachers have emphasized, then that naturally transforms the sort of meaning of my life. It's not about it's not about me, but it can be more. Wow, I'm I'm part. I'm just part. I'm an expression. I'm at one manifestation of all this. What can I do to make this better for everyone? So in a way, it naturally leads to what Buddhism calls the Bodhisattva path, which is a life based on you know the fundamental meaning of of my life is yeah what. What can I do to contribute, given who I am, my situation, so forth? And, and so I think there's a kind of a natural shift from self-preoccupation to uh, this, the, the, this larger concern, which can come out in a number of ways. I mean, traditionally in Asian Buddhism, they didn't have the kind of ecological crisis that we have now, so it wouldn't focus so much on that. It would tend to focus more on sort of helping other individuals, especially teachers, you know, helping students and, and so forth. But, and here's part two in response to your question, this, this issue about um, uh, once we do open up to the world, then I think we're naturally confronted by what's going on ecologically, you know. Um, a couple of years ago in an interview, Noam Chomsky remarked that this is the most dangerous time in human history. And I think he's right. He wasn't only talking about the climate crisis and the ecological crisis, but that, that's what he started with. And so, in a way, it, it's a kind of a natural unfolding as we see through our own self-preoccupation and our eyes become opened. You know, it's like, oh, shit, what are we going to do here, you know? Uh, yeah. and, and, and there's a really important distinction to be made here, I think, um, because frankly, for those of us who try to do this, it, it can be very overwhelming, you know, as you alluded to at the beginning. And it's really easy, I think, to, to fall into a kind of despair. And so I think it's really important to distinguish the kind of head trip duality of, of hope and despair which is sort of future-oriented, from grief. I mean, I think grief is much more here and now, it's embodied. Um, hope and dis despair is part of this duality of hope and future, where, where, where it's definitely a kind of a head trip that, that we were preoccupied with what's going to happen in, in the future. Whereas if we can feel our grief, then there there can be something very powerful about it. Because I think as long as we don't feel our grief, it gets mixed in with things like despair and we feel disempowered. Um, yeah. some, some years ago when I was in London, I came across a little memorial in, to the victims of 9-11. And, and it, it, the only thing it said was, grief is the price we pay for love, you know? Grief, grief is the homage we pay to that which we love. And so if, if we love the earth, you know, I think some grief is, is going to be natural. But often, I think, usually, I think most of us are repressing it because it's just too painful. And, you know, one of the 
main things we do with the Ecodharma retreats that uh, I co-teach up at the Ecodharma Center. We've started this Rocky Mountain Ecodharma Retreat Center uh, in the mountains above Boulder. Um, one of the things we focus on is building a sense of community that we can actually share our deep feelings about what's going on, not only grief, but anger, fear, confusion. And I think sharing that with other people is so important because it helps us cut through, I mean, again, the sense of separation and isolation, my own grief, if we can share that, that sense of disempowerment, uh, we we uh, open up and feel a kind of em empowerment uh, by doing it with other people. And, and I think that's... Uh, in a way, maybe the most important thing about that that retreat. Yeah. yeah, That's a beautiful thing. And I think that that's a big part of why we have had so much inaction is the inability to feel and the amount of numbing that we do, at least here in the West, I can attest to people in my generation, you know, and it really does become a lot more um, alluring to focus on our own individual stories and to kind of numb out. But I would argue like one of my thoughts as somebody who's into manual therapy and uh, just getting educated on people's emotional bodies and the psychology of that is that we all do have an access point to that grief. We all feel it, whether we believe in climate change or if you're fighting it. And I think we innately as human beings have a sense of knowing within us that something is fundamentally not right. I think like it's a part of our human organism. You know, mm -hmm. and it's interesting with this, we, we don't allow ourselves, we don't have the container to hold that cracking open of the heart to feel that properly. So how can people who are hearing this who might not have access to uh, your retreat center or anything like this, how can they safely start to access these emotions and these feelings in order to actually churn up uh, a desire to be connected? I mean, it's just such like a painful thing to really like that first chapter I read of your book, like I was just having my morning coffee and just like, oh my God, like very important, very uh, powerful. But it is, it's just such a, you know, if you're, if you don't have the container, if I wasn't a meditator, it could have been very overwhelming. And it's like, how do we create a container with ourselves and with our yeah. community to touch that without completely freaking out? It's a great question. And, you know, given that we usually read books individually, I, I sometimes wonder, uh, are there people who don't get any further reading that book? Because it's pretty, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't uh, gloss over the, the difficulty of our situation. You, you know, it, it seems to me the, the single most important thing that, that might help is, is doing it with others. It's like, and and again, it's interesting how that fits in with this larger Buddhist concern generally. As as you remarked before, you know, we're a very individualistic society here in the U.S. Uh, in fact, very likely the most individualistic in the history of of humanity. And there's pretty shocking statistics that come out about how many people, you know, the reduction over the last generation or so in terms of how many friends people have, how many people don't have someone they could identify as a best friend. So how do you, how do you, how do you share that? Um, I'm reminded of a story, one of my dear friends, David Chernikov here in Boulder, another Buddhist teacher, he, he, he was working in Nepal, uh, helping, uh, you know, part of a health team that was working in rural areas. And, you know, so, somebody asked him, um, 
so what is your you know what is your job what do you do and he's a therapist he's a psychotherapist and he uh, explained at some length because the guy didn't really know anything about that he explained at some length what that involved and the guy that he talked to sort of sat back and said but don't they have any friends you know it's like yeah. What's the what's the function of a friend? Uh, and I think when it comes to the ecological crisis and f feeling our feelings about it, it that's so necessary. I mean, Joanna Macy, who for me is the great sort of the the grandmother of ecodharma of all of us. I mean, you know, she has started this organization, the work that reconnects, where mm -hmm. and you know basically they go through the sort of pattern very similar. We we've adapted it where you know you come together and it's only by coming together that you can actually share your feelings about what's going on um, we our, our ecodharma is center which i mentioned earlier we're very fortunate that we have this beautiful place in the mountains where when we do our retreats weather permitting we can do everything outside and we actually start out the first couple days um, uh, emphasizing, you know, don't don't sort of go inward and do your sort of meditation where you're going inside, but rather open up and just meditate in the sense of letting go of whatever it is that keeps you from, you know, feeling your connection. And and we emphasize feeling gratitude for that as well, in whatever way, expressing it in whatever way you want. And it's only after that, that we do that kind of sharing of grief and other feelings that I mentioned. And then after that, it's interesting, th there's some prep and then people go off on a two day, two night solo when they're by themselves in the natural world. And we encourage people, don't have an agenda, just open up, you know, what do the trees, what do the insects, what do the animals? Uh, what what do they have to uh, to speak to you, and and I think there's something incredibly uh, healing about that, uh, and also something empowering in the sense that we naturally feel we want to do whatever we can to engage to to cultivate uh, to engage in the sense of of helping heal. And as, and as you and I have both implied, you know, the healing we're talking about is not just the healing of the earth, but the healing of our relationship with the earth. So the healing is just as much our own healing in the process. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. And I think that's one of the things a lot of people who aren't familiar with Buddhism, their immediate thought of it is like monks meditating in caves yeah. and yeah. being total renunciates and unplugging. And that's kind of a a thread within a lot of Eastern traditions. But what I really found uh, fascinating, which I mean, I actually plugged into Joanna Macy's work before I was even into Buddhism. Like, I don't know how I found her, but the work that reconnects, she has a book on it. And it was just such a, um, it, it really turned me in a way. And then, you know, I found Roshi Joan Halifax, who's very service oriented. And then I realized that that idea of being the renunciate is not really how this path typically works at least it hasn't here in the west and some of the great lineage holders here in the west have always advocated being engaged with the world and i think that that just feels so much it just feels so needed right now have a spiritual path engage with service and actually connecting with the real suffering of what's happening right now and that 
also gets me to think a lot about the, you know, the Bodhisattva path. And that's mm -hmm. something that, you know, I've like always heard the term, but my teachers have been kind of walking me through it and I haven't mm -hmm. taken my vow or anything, but that really does seem like just such a powerful set of methodology and practices for anybody involved with actually transforming um, the issues that we have. So I'm curious about engaging with that for folks who have never mm -hmm. even heard of that term. You know, we brought it up and mm -hmm. what exactly is the role of the Bodhisattva and what do you think it can do for us right now facing the issues that we have? Mm -hmm. Well, um, yeah, the uh, often the, the, the Bodhisattva in the tradition, right? It's, and I should emphasize that this is emphasized in Mahayana Buddhism, uh, which is the Buddhism more of uh, East Asia and, uh, and North, North Asia traditionally. Um, the idea is very much that we shouldn't just be concerned about our own enlightenment, our own awakening, our own nirvana, but that insofar as we experience uh, that it's important that we take the vow that we want to become enlightened in order to help everyone. So it, it, it fits very nicely into, into what I was saying earlier about this shift from self-preoccupation to, you know, I'm part of all this, what, what can I do to make it a better world for, for everyone? Um, one of the interesting things Joanna Macy says about this is that, quote, you know, the world has a role to play in our awakening. Um, in, in other words, it's sometimes the Bodhisattva path is understood in, in, in a kind of mythological way in the sense that Bodhisattvas are people who could kind of, again, this is mythological, but sort of disappear and uh, they're on the edge of complete enlightenment. And again, mythologically, this is understood as being kind of separate from the rest of the world. And the idea is that the bodhisattvas uh, stick around because they've taken this vow, they stick around to help to help the rest of us. And I think there's something kind of simplistically dangerous about that, that, uh, um, I mean, if I think back upon my own, the beginnings of my own practice in, say, Hawaii, uh, living in the Maui Zendo, and, uh, you know, it, it was basically a bunch of us old hippies, but we were, we were pretty serious about practice, and you know, things happened. Uh, uh, there were experiences, what in Zen we call kensho. But I think what many of us realized is that it's one thing to meditate and to have some experience. Uh, it's something else to in integrate that realization into how we actually live in the world, how we actually relate to other people, that that's much more of a challenge. And that's where the Bodhisattva path, you know, comes in. Uh, Ram Das famously said something like, uh, so you think you're enlightened, huh? Well, um, go spend the holidays with your family, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, so what does that mean for the Bodhisattva path? Well, the person who benefits most from the bodhisattva path is the bodhisattva. It's part of that process of shifting these old self-preoccupied habits to relating to the world and in the world in a new way. So it's not just a it's not just a sacrifice, but it's actually um, becoming a, a different kind of person uh, in 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 the world. And and if you think about all of these, uh, you know, great teachers, it. It's striking how, how many of them, 
this is actually a slightly different point, I realize, but but it's it's related. I mean, if you think about the Buddha, the life story of the Buddha, you know, when he goes out into spiritual path, he goes where? He goes into the forest. He's got a couple teachers. He tries asceticism, but eventually he he's meditating, but he's meditating by himself. And, you know, it, it's quite striking to think how other great teachers too, like uh, Moses in the in the desert or in the mountaintop, or Jesus, uh, forty days, forty nights by himself in the wilderness, uh, Muhammad's cave, and so forth. How important it is to sort of, you know, go out into the natural world in a way that I think helps open us up, and to sort of have a realization there about our connection. But then what happens? They come back. You know, they don't stay out there. They're actually, they have this insight, this wisdom that they want to bring back to, uh, to, to society, to the world. And, and I think that both parts are really important. Uh, the wonderful thing about our Ecodharma Center is that we're able to offer Joanna Macy type practices in this beautiful natural setting where people can kind of reconnect directly with the natural world. But also that isn't an end in itself. It's also about bringing that back into how we relate to other people, to society as a whole, to the way that society connects with the natural world. And that that kind of transformation I see as a kind of a lifelong task. But at, at this point in history, it's pretty clear that it has to involve something like ecodharma, some ways for us to respond both personally in terms of reducing our own carbon footprint, but also collectively uh, re- responding to the kind of ecological challenge that we're facing now. Sorry, I tend to go off a bit and talk no, about it's... this, but... Uh... It's all really pertinent, really uh, useful information, especially for folks. I mean, even myself, who's a little familiar with it, just hearing different presentations of these ideas, I find, especially from people from different lineage streams, mm-hmm. I find that like the overlap is cool, and then like the, the parts that I didn't catch are really nice. Um, what I find really interesting is we have all these traditional teachings that have lasted for thousands of years. But we're really in like a strange position in this time because, I mean, we're in a different culture, which, I mean, the Dharma hasn't really been here for more than like 70 years. So we're like kind of like the torchbearers for the West. And we also have this unprecedented uh, cultural environmental situation where we're kind of, I mean, we have to blaze our own trail and incorporate these teachings in a way that have never been done. And also the fact that, you know, we're sharing teachings over the internet like this, like there's so many different elements to this current time that we've never had before. Do you kind of feel a sense of that kind of like on the edge of the new ideas in the next generation? Do you feel like a responsibility in articulating this? And Yes. And I also think that that's what Buddhism at its best has always done in the sense that, you know, if you look at the way Buddhism spread throughout Asia, I mean, it didn't just impose itself, but every time it went to a new culture, it would interact with the local. Um, For example, I mean, in China, you know, Mahayana Buddhism from India, it interacted with Taoism. And the result of that was Chan or Zen. The Buddha didn't teach Zen. I mean, that was what evolved naturally in China. Same thing in Tibet, of course, with uh, 
the the old uh, animism, the Bon animism, and you know you, you get the tantric practices and the way they they interacted. And so now, as you're saying, in the last uh, seventy years or so, the, West, the Buddhism comes to the West, and not just the West, but in a way the whole modern world, which is so different from anything that it ever in you know it ever interacted with, and. Um, not just a modern world, but a modern world in crisis. And, and I think it's essential, and it's also true to the best of the Buddhist tradition, that we think seriously about that, about that interaction. Let me give you one example that I think very much goes to the heart of it. Um, you know, the whole duality between good and evil, that's, that's not the way Buddhism looks at the world, right? Um, that's sort of theistic or Abrahamic, you could say. For Buddhism, uh, there's much more emphasis on ignorance. It's, it's more of a cognitive thing. It's like we don't realize our true nature. But, but the way that tends to play out is the Buddha says when what we do is, is motivated by the three poisons or the three fires, right? Greed, ill will or antipathy, right? And uh, uh, delusion, then it's going to create problems. So Buddhism traditionally has emphasized, you know, understanding, seeing, transforming, transforming our greed into generosity, our will, ill will into loving kindness, our uh, delusion, especially delusion of separate self to the wisdom of interdependence and so forth. And, and one of the really important things I think is happening, has happened in the modern world is, sadly, those three poisons have been institutionalized in a way that they hadn't been, weren't in Asia, right? I mean, if, if greed means you never have enough, I think uh, that's a pretty good description of our contemporary economic system, which emphasizes, you know, consumerism is kind of a religion almost in itself for many people. Uh, corporate profits, prices, market share, etc. you know, more and more. But as you might say, why is more and more always better if it can never be enough? Um, yeah. ill will, look at our militarism, yeah. our, our racism, um, uh, delusion. Well, I, I used to talk about advertising, but let, let's be frank here. What about Fox News and how the internet is being manipulated to sort of make people understand what the problems are, and I think in a very dangerous sort of way. So these have been institutionalized, and I think part of the challenge for us, a big part of the challenge is not only working on our own greedy will delusion, but also finding ways to work with other people to address these institutionalized forms of greedy will delusion. I think that's absolutely essential. And again, I think that's that's fairly new. That's that's not something you find talked about in Asian Buddhism, but I, I think at this point it's something indispensable. Yeah. You know, I know I, I talk to a lot of people from different spiritual backgrounds who um, are in my generation who kind of have this idea that it's going to be enough if you just work on your own kind of mess? Do you think that it's going to take more than just, do you think it'll reflect out and just magically change? They're like, how do we address both that within ourselves and these met, these huge structures that just seem so beyond the pale of being able to actually touch? Like, How do we is it enough to just work on ourselves? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's it's a very good point. You know, it, it's interesting how the traditional Asian Buddhist emphasis on individual transformation. And by the way, I, I'm not sure this was 
a, a genuine reflection of the Buddha himself. I mean, if you look at the Buddha's life insofar as we know it, right? I mean, look at his attitude toward women, you know, uh, creating a Sangha for women, which is a really radical thing in that time, 2,400 years ago, and creating a Sangha of, you know, renunciant, uh, and a, 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 a Sangha, right? That, and uh, sorry, not only for women, but also a denial of caste. When you join the Sangha, you lost caste. Some people are speculating, you know, maybe the Buddha wasn't just trying to create what we think of today as a new religion, but in fact, he was trying to start a kind of larger cultural revolution that might transform society at large. Be that as it may, whether it's true, the way Buddhism developed, uh, you know, over time making peace with, uh, you know, wanting support from the kings and so forth, it, it very much became individualized, the focus on individual transformation. I mean, none of those Asian Buddhist societies was democratic, right? So uh, there is this traditional individualistic approach. Um, and then that comes to the West, especially the US, we're, all, we're already incredibly individualistic, right? And, and so I, I think there's kind of a natural fit. And this is one of the really important growing edges of uh, contemporary Buddhism, I would say. You know, uh, Buddhism talks about the three treasures, uh, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Well, we have a lot of teachers. We have a lot of teachings. Uh, but I think where we're often still weakest is the sense of Sangha, because still people tend to approach it as, you know, leave me alone to work in my own meditation and, you know, strive for my own enlightenment. But what I think is happening, and it's just going to happen more and more, is the realization as, as we begin to wake up and see through this delusion of separation, we're going to realize the dukkha, the suffering, the discomfort that we feel. It's not just individualistic, it's part of a larger dukkha in the world right now. And, and so in that sense, I think the, the, the transformation is, uh, is, is inevitable that somehow approaching Buddhism as, as a way to sort of ignore all this larger social ecological suffering, uh, at a certain point, it just doesn't work. It's, it's, it's going to become, and it is becoming clear that that in and of itself, uh, that there's a fundamental delusion built into that. Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of people who tune into this kind of conversation. And I know you probably don't have the right answer, but uh, I don't think, I don't think anybody does is what I'm going to say is like, you know, do you, do you actually have any sort of, uh, I want to choose my words correctly here, but do we actually have a chance, you know, with the amount of interlocking crisis that we're facing, do, do you feel like there's still any wiggle room to actually maybe turn the boat and miss the iceberg or, um, okay, no, that, that's a fair question. Um, I mean, if you ask me personally, the, the prospect of our missing the iceberg completely is uh, getting smaller and smaller. But what hitting the iceberg means, that's, I think a lot of that is going to be changed, uh, will vary according to our attitude toward it. You know, it's like, the most important thing to acknowledge is, uh, you know, we d we just don't know. There's a fundamental mystery there, and it's interesting how important that is in Buddhist teachings as well, especially emphasized in in the Zen in the Zen tradition. What we call, you know, don't know mind, 
that um, and you know what it what it really comes down to, I think, is um, our our task as ecosatvas, if you want to use that term, um, is to do the very best we can, you know, in the face of that not knowing. And that means we don't know whether anything we do is going to make any difference whatsoever. But but that's okay. It's like um, there there there's a fundamental mystery here that I think we really need to acknowledge. That in Buddhist practice, you know, it's not the kind of transformation. It's not about sort of ah now I understand everything about what's going on. I think it's much more about sort of opening up to this great mystery, this sacred mystery. You know where things are transforming all the time, whether we whether we know it or not, and in in the face of that mystery, somehow the idea that we don't have a chance. I mean, I think that's that hope and despair duality that we were talking about earlier. We have to live in a way that we acknowledge the sacred mystery, and we don't know what's going to happen, and we don't know, can't know, what role what effect whatever I do, whatever we do is is going to have on that. And of course, that's that that helps a lot. Um, that's why meditation or some kind of mindfulness practice is so essential. Um, the path of the Bodhisattva is is a double one. It's not just about going out there and helping, but we continue to work on our own transformation. and those two, you know, our own transformation, the larger social ecological transformation, they're very much, they're very much of a piece. They, they're two sides of, of the same coin. And rather than focusing too much on the end, it's important to sort of um, integrate the ends in, into the means. Um, the metaphor or the analogy I like to use here is like, um, uh, say running a marathon, unlike uh, a hundred meter dash where you know you don't have time to think about anything except getting to the other end as quickly as possible, you can't run a marathon that way, right? The point is, actually, I should say I don't run marathons, but my friends who do, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, the point is to do. It's like just this. It's like. You don't get in this head where you're trying to get to the end as quickly as possible, but it's very much sort of just this step, just this step, just this step, becoming one with that. But you're, you know, you're moving in this direction. And if you keep doing that, you're going to get there. And, and I think that's the important thing. Um, as, as the Buddha himself emphasized, uh, non-attachment to results. He said that the uh, the actions of an awakened person are and a nirasa, which can be translated uh, without expectation or even, um, you know, without that game of hope and despair, just just doing the best we can right here and now. And how that's all going to play out, you know, we, we really don't know. There's so many scenarios. And yes, some of them certainly uh, are, are very grim, but in a way, it, accepting this don't know mind, uh, accepting that we're not going to understand that, um, doing the very best we can here and now. It's, I don't know if this is a little too light to bring into this, but it really feels like this is just such an auspicious 
and powerful time to be a practitioner. Like the conditions uh, externally are just so ripe. Because everything that we're facing typically on the inside, now it's just mirrored so perfectly in the outside. And I feel like being able to recognize the different mechanisms of power and the way that the three poisons have institutionalized themselves, seeing it out there playing out so clearly, it, I feel like it helps uh, see it internally. And there, there's kind of this like mutual deepening of understanding. The more you learn about yourself, the more you see it out there. And it, it really does feel like there is some element, like a silver lining of really uh, expediting the process of discovery that's happening, whether or not that's uh, a good thing or not. I mean, you know, we want it to be uh, nicer times, but there is something about that that I feel to be just really potent about just being human right now is everything is just happening instantaneously. I, I think that's exactly right. You, you, you've really expressed it very well that our times, you know, it, it doesn't work anymore if it ever did to sort of the game of consumerism, which frankly, I think that's the most popular religion at the yeah. moment. If, if you think of a religion as what teaches us how to live in the world, right? Um, um, the game of consumerism, individualism, what's in it for me, uh, you know, the old ideas of success. and It's like those don't make any sense anymore, really, in, in, in a world given the kind of situation we're in today. There, it's interesting how I spend a lot of time in our Ecodharma Center, too, you know, sort of introducing Buddhist and other spiritual practitioners to, you know, what we call the Ecosattva path. But it's interesting, it works the other side too, that you know, we've had retreats for Extinction Rebellion members and other eco-activists because it's important that they ground their activism in some kind of personal mindfulness or meditation practice. Because if you don't do that, you, it's so hard to avoid getting burned out and frustrated and angry. But if one can sort of, you know, incorporate that you know we continue to work in ourselves while we're continuing to do what we can in the world i think sometimes i think that's the single most important thing that buddhism has to offer right now is that sense of a of a double practice and emphasizing engagement but not in a way that it denies the importance of personal practice and personal transformation as well yeah, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but from my understanding, it seems like the cultivation of bodhicitta is kind of like the the spear edge of that kind of dual practice because it is it, it shines in and it shines out. And do do you feel like that's kind of an accurate statement? Uh, yes, I I think that's that's a good way to say it, and we should probably explain what bodhicitta means, right? And basically, it is the arising of the aspiration to become enlightened, not just for my own sake, but in in order to help in any way possible the, the awakening of, of everyone. And I think we could, I think we have to include in that the healing of the earth, the healing of our relationship with the earth. And you know, one really interesting thing, thing about that is that that arising, it's not, it it can be understood as kind of an ego trip, right? I'm going to save the world. And that's not the real bodhicitta. The real bodhicitta is this kind of non-dual 
arising. It's, it's, not a, it's not something that comes from the ego. It's not something that the ego can decide to do, but it's actually something, something deeper. And I think that in and of itself is, is, the re, is, is like a stage of enlightenment, the realization that we're connected to, a, a part of, a manifestation of, of something greater than ourselves. And um, I, I think bodhicitta is, is, is a wonderful term for you know, trying to describe that, that unity, that non-duality of practice and uh, personal practice and social practice that we're, we're talking about. I don't know if this is too big of a conversation to open up, but how do how does that arising kind of come about traditionally? I mean, you definitely can't force it. You can't try and fabricate it. It's something that's really organic and spontaneous. So, do, like, how do you set the ground for that to even have the potential to emerge? Yeah, um, it's it's a good question. I mean, sometimes it, it it just happens by itself, and in a way, it's it's similar to what we call Kensho or like the first taste, the first opening in, in Zen practice. Uh, it's not something that you can do. Uh, it's not something that, that the ego can manufacture or make happen. Um, as we say in, um, and I think it might have been Chugam Trumpa who said this, um, um, How did he say it? <laughs> it basically, enlightenment is uh, is always an accident, but meditation makes us accident prone. I, yeah. I think that's I think that's it. So you know, when when we meditate, we're cultivating, as it were, the field of our mind in a, in a way where something can happen. And again, it's something that sort of springs up, or it's it's not something we do. It's just something that non-dually appears. And I think it's exactly the same thing with the, the bodhicitta. But it's also really important to do things that cultivate it, not only meditation, but I think, you know, different types of, of social engagement can, can help that to uh, spontaneously arise. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah, I figured that that's such a big conversation. I was like, oh, should I open that can of worms? I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> well, we, we opened it a tiny bit. Yeah, yeah, just a couple worms came out. Um, yeah, so we are pretty much at time that went by really fast. That that was a lot. Um, you know, for listeners who are hearing this, who are feeling a sense of movement within themselves, who are like, oh, what you're saying resonates in a way. Um, what can they do going forward? I mean, getting in touch with you in some fashion or, yeah. you know, what would you just recommend listeners do who are feeling a sense of like, oh, I got to do something. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Well, um, speaking personally first, you know, check out my website because there's more of this sort on, on my website, uh, davidloyd.org in, in terms of audio and videos and so forth, readings and books are listed and all that. Um, uh, the, the other thing that I've been involved in helping to start in the last few years is as I mentioned, this Rocky Mountain Ecodharma Retreat Center. Uh, and, you know, we, we have our website and we offer retreats, and that may be something that attracts uh, some people. Uh, rmerc.org, or, you know, just do a, a search for Rocky Mountain Ecodharma Retreat Retreat Center. I mean, we're, we're not the only people doing what I call Ecodharma retreats, but I think 
retreats where that combined meditation with being in the natural world, I think, can can be really, really helpful. So I, I would encourage people to sort of, uh, you know, explore, explore some of those options. Uh, and it, in general, you know, the whole eco-dharma movement, it's, it's fairly new. Um, but, it, you know, it's really starting to take off in that there are a lot of resources, there are a lot of teachers, there are a lot of writings. Uh, I suppose at the top of my list would be uh, Joanna Macy's books. Uh, so if people want to move forward here. But, but I think if, if one can attend a kind of eco-dharma retreat, I think that, that can be very, very helpful. Mm. So that's what comes to mind right now. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, I, it's on my list now. now. Now it's it's much more in my radar. Like, ooh, that might be might be coming up soon. So I, I am co-leading a retreat there uh, in uh, early August, the third through the thirteenth, where we've actually added another day. But I, I talked earlier about what that involves. You know, the uh, being outside and the uh, the sharing of the grief, and then two day, two nights solo. So that so that'll be happening. Yeah, August. Third through thirteenth, if people are interested, but there are other other people doing similar things like that. Yeah, wonderful, awesome. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, I really appreciate your wisdom and just the intersection of studies that you've done is uh, very powerful, very very needed. So, well, thank you for the invitation, Brad. I've I've enjoyed meeting you and our conversation and. Uh, you know, we, we certainly haven't exhausted the, the issues. So yeah, uh, we'll, we'll see where it goes. Yeah, yeah so much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wonderful. We'll, we'll catch you next time. You too. Okay, take care. All right, everybody, that was the episode. Thank you so much for listening all the way through until the end. Hopefully you got something from this. If so, consider checking out David Loy over at davidloy.org. Uh, he's got some really good stuff there. Again, his book, Ecodharma, is really good. So I highly encourage checking that out. If you want to support this show, head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. You can subscribe on YouTube, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash 21st Century Vitalism. Whatever you want to do to help, I would greatly appreciate it. And I see you and I appreciate you. All right. Bye.